We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today. Uh, Mark Whipple was the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Pitt. He coached Kenny Pickett. Mel Kuyper mocked yesterday in his latest mock draft Kenny Pickett to Washington at number 11. Mark Whipple, you will hear in the next segment, talk about Kenny Pickett, the college player, and Kenny Pickett, the projected professional player. Mark coached a lot in the NFL with the Steelers, the Browns, um, and has coached a lot in college over the years uh, as well. That's in the next segment. The final segment of the show today uh, is an interview that I recorded earlier today with John Dahl. John's one of the two executive producers of the documentary that I have recommended here recently, The Tournament, the history of the ACC men's basketball tournament, which has been airing on the ACC network. John's one of the two executive producers. John will be my guest. John was a big part of, if you recall, the Sports Century uh, documentaries on ESPN, all the 30 for 30s, or many of the 30 for 30s. If you've watched any of the College Football 150 documentary episodes, uh, John was a significant part of that. Um, I've just so enjoyed the first five episodes. I've actually watched six total, uh, but uh, I can't wait to watch the rest of it. It's been great. If you're a college basketball fan, you'll like it. If you're an ACC basketball fan, you will love it. Um, and if you're not uh, I, I, any one of the um, uh, aforementioned, I still think you'll like it. And if not, you'll just enjoy two-thirds of the show maybe today. Uh, a quick apology yesterday for getting the show out so late. That was uh, 100% on me. We had a technical problem that wasn't much of a technical problem. In fact, it was a very minor technical problem. I don't even think you could call it a problem. It was uh, a minor issue that I thought was a major issue that I could not fix and I did I did not figure out how to fix until I got some help uh, fixing it um, and it was very minor. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I was an idiot yesterday. Uh, today the show getting out at a more normal time, although I did wait uh, for this final um, uh, for this first segment, which is my final segment in recording the show today, uh, for Martin Mayhew to speak out in Indianapolis. I just wanted to make sure that nothing major came from Martin Mayhew, although I will share with you a couple of the things that he said, including his free agent priorities in terms of his own players. But I'm going to start with a report this morning 
on 106.7 The Fan's Sports Junkies show. Now, 106.7 The Fan is actually the Team 980's sister station now. We are both uh, owned by the same owner. We are both managed um, by the same program director. Uh, and they've obviously had a legendary you know, quarter of a century show um, on 106.7 The Fan. And they had news this morning that has made a lot of waves. Uh, they reported, or two of the four sports junkies, Jason Bishop, I know Jason well, Eric Bickle, both reported that Rick Patino is Maryland's top choice, Maryland's number one choice to be its next men's head basketball coach. Quote, they're going hard after him right now, and there are a couple of donors that are leading the charge. He's their number one choice, closed quote. So uh, let me respond to that. Number one, uh, this is a credible report because it's coming from them. So I know that they wouldn't have just thrown it out there for the sake of throwing it out there. How do I know that? Well, basically all of us that do this sports talk radio thing, we're not in the business of being reporters and breaking news, but... As I've mentioned in the past, sometimes I've had some of this stuff. We get a hold of information and we do break some news. But because it's really not our core thing, when we have it, it's almost always right or pretty close to right. Um, if you were to keep track of any of the stuff that I've had over the years, I think probably 98% of it has been 100% accurate. And the other 2% was probably accurate in the moment. It just didn't turn out to be exactly what I said. Uh, these are the guys, by the way, Jason in particular, who had this story of the Beth Wilkinson report recommendation that Snyder sell the team. Well, at the time, people sort of poo-pooed it. Um, but, uh, you know, a year later, it looks like that actually may have been her recommendation. Anyway, I t I, when I heard this this morning at the end of my radio show, I was like, hmm, because I've, you know, been talking to a lot of people, uh, a lot of Maryland people, as many of you might imagine, this is important to me. This is something I'm really passionate about, Maryland basketball, and who the next coach is going to be. And my number one choice would be Rick Pitino. Absolutely my number one choice. I would not care about his past at all. Um, there's so much worse in college sports these days. And with NIL uh, and the transfer portal, um, it is kind of the wild, wild west out there right now. In fact, you'll hear me you know, mention that to Mark Whipple as part of our interview um, because he had to deal with that this year as a college football coach with a lot of players, including a player like Kenny Pickett. Uh, but uh, Rick Pitino, you know, paid his, paid the price. He's the coach at Iona. Um, he's a great basketball coach. And if Maryland hired him, uh, their season tickets would be sold out within a week. Um, every single game, including the games that usually have a lot of empty seats, like the November and December games against terrible opponents, the building would be near packed next year. He would use the transfer portal and probably create a team next year that would be a, a top 25-ish kind of tournament team. And then in years two and three, they'd be contending for Final Fours. I really believe that. I think he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. I also think as a very charismatic figure, um, he would be uh, just the life that this program needs to be injected with. It's not just a splash hire. I don't want that. 
I want a great coach. Because in the Big Ten, if you can't coach, it doesn't matter how much charisma you have. You'll get run out of this league. I mean, it is, I think, the best coached league Maryland's ever been a part of. That, that includes a lot of the great ACC years. It is a grind of a league with great coaches, and you don't win in this league if you aren't a good coach yourself. By the way, their last coach, Mark Turgeon, was a good basketball coach. That's why he's the third winningest coached coach over the last seven years in the Big Ten behind Izzo and Painter. You've got to be a good coach in this league. There are too many good ones. Patino's great, and he'll also serve uh, the purpose of injecting incredible um, juice into a program that right now is stale, for sure, stale. Uh, I Now, on the report itself, so I hope they're, I hope they're right. And I hope Patino wants it, by the way. Now, I've been asking about Patino. I've been asking about every, everybody. I've heard several names. Um, nobody, though, that I've heard that has become a um, front runner uh, at this point. Uh, there are a lot of people that I know very well that are very well connected that really have no idea what Damon Evans is planning on doing. Damon Evans is the athletic director. Now, one of their uh, part of their report was they're going hard after him right now, and there are a couple of donors that are leading the charge. Well, Rick Pitino's a New York guy. He's coaching in New York. He um, is living back in his you know home area, and there are a lot of big time Maryland boosters in New York. I've mentioned this many times in the past. Maryland, even when I went to Maryland, was a huge draw for people from New York, New Jersey, Philly. I I, I would say it seemed like when I was at Maryland, 50% of the student population was from Long Island, uh, New Jersey, uh, northern New Jersey, Bergen County, and, you know, southern Jersey and Philly. Uh, It just seemed like that was a big part of the student population. I don't know if it still is or not. But there are a lot of big-time boosters in New York and big-time heavy-hitting boosters in New York um, that may have a relationship with Rick Pitino. They may play golf with Rick Pitino at Wingfoot, where I think he's a member. Um, And so it wouldn't surprise me if a big-time donor of the program said, Pitino's my number one, and I've been talking a lot to Pitino about the job. You know, something like that. Um, I'm not saying that the report is wrong. And again, they are credible when they break news. Um, So I'm kind of excited about it. But I will also say I'm a little bit skeptical about whether or not it leads to anything. I believe that there are people in the Maryland program that probably have Rick Pitino as their number one. And perhaps even some influential people in the Maryland program. Um, But we'll see. We'll see. Now, as far as I'm concerned, whatever negative PR would come with the hiring of Rick Pitino would go away in minutes, if not seconds. Uh, uh, He would be, to me, the home run hire right now. He's 69 years old. Now, he has said in the past that he loves coaching Iona. He was asked about, I think, Maryland. And look, he's not going back to Louisville. There's one, Maryland and Louisville are the top two available coaching jobs so far. Um, he can't go back to Louisville. We know that. 
Uh, but, you know, the other names we've talked about in the past, Andy Anfield, Ed Cooley, Kevin Willard, um, these are the names that are getting thrown about. Uh, and I would bet you that there are some guys in non-Power 5 conferences um, that have been uh, discussed uh, within those uh, that are that are involved in, in the decision-making process as well. Anyway, I would love it to be true. I hope it's true. I would bet against Rick Pitino being the next head coach at Maryland, um, but I wouldn't bet a lot because I do think that there are some significant people in the program that probably um, not only want this, but they're trying to make it happen. Whether or not it would happen with the Board of Regents and anybody else that would have to sign off on it, I don't have any idea. Okay, uh, let's get to some football. Lots of news coming out of Indianapolis uh, today, uh, site of the Indy Combine, which is underway. And I'm just going to rip through some of these items. First of all, um, uh, Russell Wilson, according to Pete Carroll, is not available. Uh, John Schneider's gotten calls, the general manager, and he tells teams that have called, uh, Russell Wilson's not available, we're not trading him. So that from Seattle today. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but... If you don't have Russell Wilson in the building to replace Russell Wilson and you're not intending on rebuilding starting in 2022, then what, why would you trade him? Um, that would be you know, kind of an obvious for any football fan. It's really hard to find a Russell Wilson. And unless Russell Wilson's coming back in the form of Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson in a trade or – you know, you decide we're rebuilding, which they're not because they brought Pete Carroll and his whole staff back. It, you're, I don't think you're getting Russell Wilson away from Seattle. And again, as it relates to Washington, even though I don't think, well, I know that he wouldn't be opposed to playing in Washington, there are other teams that would be able to offer more. So that's number one, Seattle essentially saying, nope, he's not available. Number two, um, 49ers general manager John Lynch spoke today. I said yesterday, and I've said before, I, I said it to Jay Gruden in my interview with him last week or whenever it was, that, I don't know, part of me just thinks that Jimmy Garoppolo is not going to get traded. Now, this was before the shoulder surgery uh, report yesterday, and that he's not going to be able to, you know, work out or throw until the summer. But, you know, Jay said, well, of course they're going to trade him because they're going to get a lot back for him. Well, if they were going to get a lot back for him, or, or, you know, if, if they should trade him. But what if the compensation they've been hearing for Jimmy Garoppolo is like a second and a third, or like a third and a fourth, and it's not a first-rounder? I just know Kyle loves Jimmy Garoppolo, and who knows if they're sold on Trey Lance. He's under contract. They don't have to trade him. I just have this gut feel that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be back in San Francisco. So 49ers GM John Lynch um, said that, you know, uh, that there's a challenge with the Jimmy Garoppolo plan with the shoulder surgery. He said there's concern for Jimmy's shoulder, but the 49ers have and will continue to have discussions with teams about a potential trade. But then he acknowledged the following. He said teams need QBs and are interested in Jimmy G, but for now, Jimmy G is part of us, closed quote. All right, next item on the list of items. Uh, Nikki Jabala from the Washington Post reported that Washington plans on picking up the fifth-year option for Montez Sweat. 
when you're a rookie, when you're a first round pick, the team you know signs you to a four year deal with a fifth year option. You get that on all first rounders. You get the option of signing them or exercising an option um, to have them under contract for uh, a lot more money than they made in their rookie deal, but for a fifth year. So you basically have control over a first round pick for five seasons, uh, but you've got to pick up that option. Um, before the player's fourth season. So according to Nikki Javala, Washington is going to pick up that fifth-year option on Montez Sweat. Uh, Next, uh, almost every quarterback at the Combine, it's been reported, has met with Washington. So Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, uh, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, Washington's going to meet with all of these people. That's not a surprise. They're meeting with every single quarterback, and those meetings are crucial. You know, what they learn with these guys is really important. Um, I think these meetings are more important than anything else other than the tape, but the meetings are super important. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody blows them away because maybe they haven't been blown away with the tape. Maybe they haven't been blown away with their scout reports from seeing these guys and talking to coaches, et cetera. But maybe in a one-on-one meeting, they're blown away with a guy's intelligence, football love, um, commitment, leadership ability, communication ability, et cetera. Who knows? Okay, Uh, Martin Mayhew spoke today. Let me just mention a couple of the things that Ben Standig uh, tweeted out that he said. And if there's sound on this, we'll probably play it on tomorrow's show. Martin Mayhew said the team would love to have free agent running back J.D. McKissick back. That's not a surprise. I think he's a priority for them, and I really think they missed him a lot down the stretch of this season. Uh, Mayhew also said that he plans to meet this week with the agents for McKissick, Bobby McCain, and the extension-eligible Terry McLaurin. Remember, Terry McLaurin just finished his third season in Washington, was a rookie in 19, 20 was his second year, 21 was his third year. He's in entering his last year of his rookie deal. Because he was selected in the third round, there's no fifth-year option on Terry McLaurin. they got to get him signed to a long-term deal now. You don't want to see him be a free agent this time next year. Mayhew also said that Washington's planning on meeting with the agent for Landon Collins, who is a potential cap casualty. That, to me, is obvious. That They love him. They, well, they loved what he did when they moved him to a position that suited him, which was more of kind of an in-the-box safety, a downhill safety, uh, a.k.a. inside linebacker. Not really, but... Uh, They loved him in that role, and he played well in that role. You know, I like Landon Collins as a player. I don't love him as a a true safety or a free safety, certainly, but I love how aggressive he is. I think he's a playmaker. Uh, But they can't bring him back at his current number. They've got to restructure with him, and we'll see whether or not he wants to restructure. But I'm sure that's what the discussions with Landon Collins will be about. Um, The other thing that Martin Mayhew said today He unprompted praised Taylor Heineke's work last season, but then said Washington's looking to upgrade at the position. Yeah, no kidding. Um, That's uh, what 
pretty much Ron Rivera said in this first soundbite that I want to play from Ron Rivera from yesterday. So there are two cuts from uh, Ron Rivera's presser yesterday. This first one is about the challenges uh, that he faces um, in the pursuit of uh, a quarterback, um, trying to find a franchise quarterback. Here's what he said. It's very challenging. You know, I was very fortunate in Carolina. We found our franchise quarterback right away. You know, we, we drafted him. He was a big part of what we did, got us to a Super Bowl. You know, had a terrific career and unfortunately got a little derailed with the injuries that, you know, his last two years with us. But, you know, when you get that guy, it's, it's, it makes things a lot easier. Not having that guy has really put the onus on us. You know, last year some things happened. You know, we were trying to get into that and um, we, we lost out to the Rams. Now this year, we, you know, being very proactive, looking, searching, doing things we are, you know, trying to, trying to truly cover every base, you know, and, and, and I've said this, you know, there's really three avenues to finding that guy, or actually there's four, you know, whether you got it on your roster, whether you can make a trade for it, whether you're out there in free agency or now the draft. I mean, we're looking at all four of those things, and we really are, and trying to decipher and figure out, um, it's, it's, it's a long process, it really is. And then you're still not guaranteed anything. You know, that's the truth of the matter. I mean, for everything that's going on right now with all the, you know, quarterbacks that could potentially be traded and listening and following what's going on, I mean, every time you hear something, you're checking into it. And so we've got to do our work. We've got to do our due diligence. It's very challenging, he said. We were very fortunate in Carolina. We found our franchise quarterback right away. We drafted him. Yeah, Cam Newton. That's why I don't know why he has put pressure on himself for this third season and even analogized this third season here in Washington to the one he had in Carolina. They're not similar in really any way. You know, there's no franchise quarterback here. And by the way, Carolina's roster going into his third year had a it was a better roster. It was a better team. It had the quarterback of the offense in Cam Newton. And it had going into his second year, Luke Keekley on defense. So, you know, this is more of, I think, a realistic admission that, you know, we don't have that guy. You know, we, he said we got a little derailed with the injuries the last two years. But, you know, when you get that guy, it makes, a, it makes things a lot easier. Last year, some of the things happened. You know, we were trying to get into that, but we lost out to the Rams, you know, referring to the Matt Stafford thing. Now this year, we're being very proactive, looking, searching, doing things. We're trying to truly cover every base. And this is where he said something, um, and then he recovered a little bit. But I thought it was interesting because every single time I've asked him or anybody else has asked him, on the radio show I asked him, you know, multiple times down the stretch of the season about quarterbacks. And he said, well, you know, we've got four paths. We've got four avenues we can travel. Uh, you know, we, we certainly have some guys here that are a possibility. We've got the draft. We've got free agency. We've got trades. Well, he answered this question yesterday saying, you know, I've said this, you know, there are really three avenues to finding that guy. And then he goes, oh, actually, there's four. Whether you got it on your roster, trade for it, free agency, or draft. No, there are only three avenues to finding that guy right now. Free agency, draft, trade. Period. The answer is not on the team. 
You know, in John Kimes' column from yesterday, he said that Washington has inquired with every NFL team about available quarterbacks and cost, and that they've start they started with a list of forty two quarterbacks that they're going to narrow down from forty two quarterbacks. First of all, why are you calling every team? Uh, who would you ask about in Pittsburgh? Is Dwayne Haskins or Mason Rudolph available? There's a little bit of a PR ploy there to kind of say, hey, we're trying really hard. We got 42 quarterbacks that are on our board. We've called all the other NFL teams to inquire about any availability and the cost of acquiring any quarterback. Well, most of the other 31 teams don't have quarterbacks that you'd truly be interested in. Anyway, I I think there's just a little bit of selling going on right now. You know, Albert Breer had that story where he pitched Washington is such a great place for a big-time quarterback. And look, I don't mind it. I'm glad that they're trying hard. I think that's the most important thing, that they are – this is clearly the priority. And that leads me to this soundbite from Ron Rivera yesterday. He was asked about how much is too much when you trade for a quarterback. Here's what he said. Well, there's, there's an old saying, what are you willing to pay for that, uh, that, uh, that, that Major League Baseball card? Whatever you pay, that's what you think the value is. You know? So in, you know, when you get in these negotiations with, with another team, it's whatever they're asking for, is it what you're willing to pay for, then that's what it is. I mean, to sit there and say what is or isn't, who knows? You know, does anybody really care what was what was traded for for, for Matthew Staff, Stafford last year? No. Does anybody really care what was traded for Matt Stafford last year? No, said Ron Rivera. Two things. One, a lot of people cared, actually. Um, a lot of my callers cared. I think a lot of you cared. I remember people saying, uh, I don't want Matt Stafford. And, you know, even if it's a third, uh, I'm not willing uh, to give up a third rounder for Matt Stafford. Some were like, yeah, I- I'll-, I'll take Matt Stafford, but certainly not a first rounder. And I'm not about to do the I told you so thing because you could do that back to me 50 times over. But I remember saying specifically, the market's going to tell you what it thinks about Matt Stafford, and it's going to be a lot more than most of you think. And obviously it was two firsts, a third, and Jared Goff. Washington offered a first and a third. Um, The other part of this answer is that they cared a little bit last year what the cost for Matt Stafford was because they offered a first and third, which was great, but it wasn't anywhere near enough to get him. You know, and we also heard them talk about, you know, they wanted a player or they wanted a little bit more. And, you know, all the talk about mortgaging the future and then all of a sudden it became we're going to build it from the inside out, you know, offensive line, defensive line, then we'll go get the quarterback. Well, you know, I'm glad he's thinking that way now because that's the kind of mindset that it's going to take. They have to think that way. It's their only way out of this thing. Now, they may not have a chance to acquire a quarterback like Matt Stafford this year. Probably won't. But last year, I wish the mentality had been, uh, I don't really care what we trade for them. Let's just get them. Because they did care to a certain degree last year. All right, up next, Mark Whipple. He coached Kenny Pickett at the University of Pittsburgh this year. Uh, Right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This segment of the podcast sponsored by MyBookie. This Saturday night, bad blood comes to a boil as Jorge Masvidal takes on Colby Covington in the main event at UFC 272, and MyBookie is upping the stakes. Double your money on your initial deposit and back Masvidal or Covington to win via KO to take advantage of a MyBookie boosted odds payout. It's easy. It only takes a moment to sign up at MyBookie. Use my promo code, KevinDC and you'll instantly double your first deposit. With that extra scratch in your account, place a bet on any fight on the card, including what will absolutely be an action-packed main event. Don't miss out. Secure your MyBookie double deposit bonus today by using my promo code KevinDC and gear up for UFC 272. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. All right, uh, I want you to listen to an interview that I did on radio about a month ago. I took this interview, which I recorded with Mark Whipple. I'll tell you who Mark is here in a moment. And uh, I ran part of it uh, on radio, and I never ran the entirety of the interview on the podcast, which I want to do right now. Mark uh, coached Kenny Pickett as his offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach over the last three seasons. He's actually now at Nebraska, where he left Pitt uh, after Kenny graduated this past year, and now he's coaching at Nebraska with Scott Frost, where he's becoming the offensive coordinator and quarterback uh, quarterbacks coach uh, 
there. But Mark is a longtime uh, football coach, coaching um, at UMass as the head coach, two different stints, coaching in the NFL in Pittsburgh with Ben Roethlisberger early in his career, with the Eagles, um, several different jobs in college. Um, But Mark had a chance over the last several seasons to coach Kenny Pickett, who is a possibility, and in Mel Kuyper's latest mock draft, he is Washington's selection at number 11 overall. So here's my conversation from about a month ago with Mark Whipple, where I started off by asking him, you've had all this time with Kenny Pickett, you know the pro game, you know the college game, what kind of college quarterback was he, and what kind of pro quarterback do you think he will be? Well, no, first and foremost, he's an awesome kid. You know, I love him dearly, uh, like a third son. You know, he works his tail off and carries himself with a lot of confidence and uh, and, and a tremendous worker. You know, he was the, the captain of the team, and, you know, he was a three-time captain at, at Pitt. And, uh, I, you know, he just a uh, really good family and uh, obviously had a great career. And, uh, you know, I finished third in the Heisman and won the ACC Player of the Year. So all the things that we thought we could do with another year, you know, kind of, and he stayed healthy was a big key. The year before he played with a, he had surgery in the middle of the season on his ankle and came back faster than anybody thought and finished the last four games, but didn't really, couldn't run around. So um, <clears throat> he's just great. You know, I just, he's had a great college career and I think he'll, he'll carry that on to the NFL. And But a lot of times the NFL, it's not, it, it is the quarterback without question, but it's it's the surrounding pieces around you, and uh, you know, and and that 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 will be key to any of the quarterbacks that that come in. And uh, I just kind of go back to when I had Ben Roethlisberger as a rookie, and you know, he won Rookie of the Year, but we had a really good football team around him. But he he made all the plays when he needed to, and just grew into his role at, at Pittsburgh. And I'm not saying that Kenny's at, at, at that level physically, but I think Kenny's a has the same makeup and. Um, the drive and the determination and the leadership ability that uh, that you need at the quarterback position in the NFL. So let's talk about the physical attributes of of Pickett, um, because you've you've touched on the leadership and the captainship, et cetera, which is I know you know I'm sure something you get asked by pro coaches and, and GMs all the time when it comes to those kinds of players. But physically, what does he do really well, and what does he need to work on at for for the next level? Well, you know, physically, I think he compares very well to Joe Burrow. Um, the, the numbers wise, height, speed, weight, all those things. And that was one thing. Kenny was a, a late bloomer in high school. I, w- I didn't recruit him. I was in, uh, I was coaching at UMass, but, uh, he, he, he grew a lot in between his junior year and senior year. He really was committed to Temple and then opened back his recruiting when he got, uh, a little bit bigger. But that's what I told him. He's six, three and a half. You know, he's 225 pounds. He's going to run like 4.6. So he has those things. I said that in measures with Joe. If people have called me about his hand size, I mean, they're, they're going to nitpick in the NFL. He's got the same hand size as Joe, I believe. And, uh, you know, when he's played in cold weather, I always thought that that was a big determination having coached, oh, gosh, six years in the AFC North was, you know, the outdoor, the climate. Obviously, there in Washington, you're outdoors. The weather's maybe not as severe as. Pittsburgh or certainly uh, Cleveland, but um, that that has some say in it. But he can make all the throws. He's he's really worked diligently about uh, uh, deep throws, which I've always tended to like to throw it down the field. And uh, I think he's really come through there. But as 
<clears throat> I think he's got all the physical attributes. Um, you know, he's got to stay healthy, and uh, that obviously has to do with the kind of line and the receivers you have. But, um, you know, I think he's going to make a great pro. I think he, he'll, he'll do the right thing. I think he's really, really grown with the media when I first got there, talked to him. You know, he, he and I said, hey, if you, I asked him when he was a sophomore, I said, do you want to be an NFL quarterback? He goes, yes, absolutely. I said, and you've got to learn how to deal with the media, and you've got to take the highs with the highs and the lows with the lows because they're going to come. And I think he's done a fa- fabulous job with that, especially this past year where, you know, he was submerged in every single day and never complained and got there early to handle a lot of the, the, the things that were happening around him and didn't let it let it affect his, his his play, and then I thought he did a tremendous job in showing his character in this NIL deal. We, we had never talked to him about what he was going to do, but he, he included his teammates in everything that he had to do with making money on the side, and I thought that was really had a lot to do with our success as a football team at, at, at Pittsburgh last year. So in the first year of NIL, opportunities are coming his way. You know, he's being mentioned, you know, in the Heisman conversation I'm just curious because I, it's kind of the wild, wild west out there as it relates to NIL. How does that work for somebody like him? Are people coming for him? Do you have a? Did you have a company that managed it? Um, and then you said that not, he. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, not not really. And when it was all foreign Terry and Lewis and Clark on an expedition, is what it kind of was. <laughs> right. <clears throat> but all of a sudden, I just saw the article somebody sent me, and then I talked to him. I did not talk to him about hey. Every Monday night, he had a deal with a, a local restaurant, and he took the players of the game and the offensive line and defensive line. He had things at golf off week. He golf tournament asked him to come and sign autographs. He said he'd only do it if he could bring some of his teammates so they could make money on the side, spending money, and shared it with the boys and girls club of, of Pittsburgh with taking some of those things and, and helping fund you know with toys and I think artwork and things like that, but. Those are all things he did on his own. Um, you know, he didn't come to us and all, all that, but, uh, you know, he shared with those things with the teammate. And as I said, I thought that brought both sides of the football together, the defensive side, which he took some of those kids, and, uh, and the offensive side. And didn't make any big deal. Didn't, he didn't want any, any kind of publicity. That was not the reason. He was just being sincere that, hey, it's always been about the team with him. And, uh I think that's that's what he'll you know he'll continue to do. That's in his DNA all the way through. We're talking to Mark Whipple. Mark was Kenny Pickett's offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach at Pitt for the last three seasons. Longtime uh, offensive coach, you know, stints with the Eagles and the Steelers and the Browns among um, many teams over the years. So back just quickly to some of the physical characteristics you mentioned hand size and it's the same size as burrow and burrow got some you know like we see every year at the combine right you know his hand size is nine or nine and a quarter that's like the smallest and whatever and his hand size you know projected to come in smaller than burrows and one of the smallest uh, of all time how big of a deal do you think that really is to nfl guys i always look at it uh in in where you played and what division and um you know, obviously the NFC, you got the cow. you're going to play the Cowboys twice, so that, that's not a problem with hand size because you're indoors. You know, obviously Washington and Philly, um, you, you know, but if you're playing in Arizona, the Cardinals, you're indoors, okay, or you're playing in Indianapolis. I don't think the hand size matters as much because of the weather. But I, I don't see it. I mean, no, 
it, if he's played in Pittsburgh, he's thrown the ball, as I told the scouts, go look at his sophomore year against North Carolina on a Thursday night. It was like 19 degrees. The wind was blowing. You know, the wind does blow a lot at Heinz Field. Uh, look at the windy games. You know, it's, it's, uh, Virginia Tech was blowing 20 to 25 mile an hour when down there. <clears throat> they made some really good deep throws. It's kind of the same thing when I was scouting Ben Roethlisberger and he played Bowling Green his senior year and it was in the rain and it was coming down sideways and I knew the coaches on the other side and they said, this guy's throwing ropes all over the place. So, and that's what Kenny's done in, in those situations. As I said, it's, it, you know, scouts have seen him practice in, in, in inclement conditions and, uh, you know, Coach Narduzzi always liked to go outside, so I think that was a plus, and people saw him that way. So, I don't, I don't see that. But it, it's, it's always a concern because, as I said to people or kids nowadays, is if you want to play in the NFL, you're going to learn to play in the cold if you want to win a Super Bowl. You know, and uh, you know, Kansas City's not going to be warm, and Buffalo and DC, and in, in, in January is cold. So there's some some things come into factor, I think. But he's a Northeast kid. He's from New Jersey, and he's played at Pittsburgh, so. He's, he's, he's been in spring practice where with the wind's been blowing and there hasn't been an issue at all. He throws a tight spiral, uh, confident in his abilities, and uh, you know I think he's going to make a, have a really good career. So you didn't mention, you answered the things that he does well. He can make every throw. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the things in watching him a lot this year, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he has a really good sense of pressure and then the ability to extend plays and is, is, is very mobile, um, like athletic vision to, 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 to evade pass rush, turn it into a play, whether it's a, a pass after extending it or a run. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, I think early on in his career, when I got to Pitt, it was like he used his athletic ability, which is takeoff running. And and then we talked about it, and we worked it as a scramble drills and things there. We have some rules that in seven-on-seven seven or something breaks down, don't just take off and run. You've got a chance to make plays. And, and as I said the year before, he couldn't do that because he – and I think this, his injury helped him that he got the ball out a little bit quicker when we had those last four games. And then uh, this year he's really extended plays and kept his eyes downfield, made a bunch of really good throws, um, especially down in the red zone. And I, I think those things, obviously, you can, and I told him, you're, those guys that are rushing you in the NFL at the same speed as you, so you're not going to have those kind of opportunities. But I think any quarterback, and you're seeing what Josh Allen has done and obviously Mahomes and, and uh, you know when Ben was young and those guys that can move a little bit, certainly is more a part of the game now than I think it used to be. You didn't mention the things that you think he's got to work on for the next level. What would those be? Well, I just I, I think that those – there's systems that are different. Uh, you know, if he gets to a team that, you know, the, the, the terminology that we used was really what I learned from Andy Reid and Mike Holmgren and – those guys in the West Coast offense, I think if he gets to a team that, that uses that terminology in the protection schemes, I think it'll help him. But he'll study and learn. You know, he'll do what he needs to do. When I got there, he cha- I changed everything and, and uh, into those, that terminology, and he handled it without any problems and uh, really taught those other guys, especially some of the young guys we had in the summers. Because in college, you're not allowed to be around those guys. But I, I just think it's just he'll, he'll, he'll handle everything well. He's a mature kid um he's seen a lot and he's he's handled the lows really well and i think he's handled the highs very very well and i think he's excited i talked to him yesterday and 
he's got a real excitement in his voice for the next, you know, the next path and the next chapter of his of his life. And I think um, he'll do people proud. Over the years in talking to guys like you about this particular position, um, people will say things like, you know, you've got to, at the pro level, be able to throw with anticipation. You can't wait for a guy to get open. You've got to throw the guy open. How is Pickett on that front? No, he's great. No, he's gotten better. You know, as I said, you know, it's it's. I think coaching has a lot to do with it also. You know, who, who's, who's he going to get and He'll handle that well, but no, I mean, Dan Marino's had a pretty good career and he broke every one of Danny's records. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's going in the right direction. Um, you know, and, and, and the speed of the game always is a little bit, and no matter who it is right away. And, you know, from the speed for the preseason, a lot different than the regular season, a lot different than the playoffs. So, and I think that's just as, as I see, you see the maturation of Josh Allen and I'm not, but I watched Josh Allen when he was a junior at Wyoming when they played BYU and kind of followed that kid just from afar. And just uh, We played when I was at UMass, we played Zach Wilson twice when he was young. I mean, Kenny's got those kind of attributes and traits. Not as big as Josh, but can run around. And, and I think he throws the ball as well as Zach Wilson. It was the second pick. So, you know, you kind of compare to those things. But, uh, you know, as I said, he's done everything that you need to do. And, and um you know, anticipation is one thing. It's he'll get on the same page with the receivers. He he has a way that 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 you know. Let's say you got to run it this way or do it this way, which will come out, and and that's really what he did with a lot of our young guys in the off season this past year. Um, we're talking to Mark Whipple. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. A couple more, and I'll let you run. Number one, yeah. um, you mentioned Joe Burrow. You just mentioned Zach Wilson. You mentioned Josh Allen. Like, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, and you will over the next couple of months. Who specifically will you, you know, mention as his pro comp? You know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's the way people do it because what I've told people. There's nobody that throws the ball the exact same way. You know, Brett Favre was a lot different than Aaron Rodgers. It's a lot different than Patrick Mahomes. It's a lot different than Josh Allen. And, and there's no cookie-cutter way, even though all these quarterback coaches, you know, are saying that. You have to learn to throw with different arm angles without question. And certainly that comes with adapted to the size. You know, it's, it's uh, a bit of science. If you don't, then you're, you're going to be gone. Same with any kind of animal. So I, I don't... I, as I said, I, I've, I've stood on the other sideline and seen these guys, and, and, and as I said, he's in that same category. Athletic ability, arm strength, leadership, determination, you know, tremendous background uh, as, as a person, you know, and a, and a leader of a franchise. And so, you know, he's done all those things in a, in a town that, you know, Pittsburgh knows it's football. Sure. And, and I think he was, he was beloved and – um, the things that he that he that he did, and the way he handled it, I think the the media, and was able to, you know, as I always say, go watch the press conferences, which he did. Why, you know, watch what happens with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and uh, you know, was able to see that firsthand since we shared a facility. So early in his career is what he, you know, he got was able to do that, and I think he's taken that into his game and and off off field. So I, you know, the guys I mentioned that have been first rounders, I think he's in that. That, that category with all the guys beforehand. And, uh, you know, you know he's not as big as Herbert. But, uh, as I said, it's just the numbers two years ago. We watched every one of Joe Burrow's 
throws from his senior year in the off season. I said, this guy's a lot like you and, and size and, and height and weight and all those things that way. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and so that's kind of probably the one guy that I say, I, I've not seen Joe throw live, but, you know, um, I just think his leadership in the way. And I worked with Mickey Joseph, who was the receiver coach at LSU. When Joe was there, we talked about it. We watched tape in the last few weeks and kind of guys that got the things that we're doing. So, I, uh, that, you know, that's why Joe and obviously, you know, we're going to have a big game this weekend. What's but, it? Uh, What's it like for you this time of year and leading up to the draft when you've coached and been as close as you've been to Kenny Pickett? How many conversations will you have with NFL general managers, NFL people? I don't know how many I'll have now. I mean, they've all been in. Everybody's been through. And that was another reason I told Kenny to, that I thought it would really help him if he came back because during COVID time, no scouts were were able to, to visit practice. And this past year, they were all there. Every team was there. And every team saw him. And they, everybody, half of them said, are you kidding me? I said, well, the, they, they see how he works and he goes about his business. And a business-like attitude. And uh, you know, every GM was there on that Thursday night when we played North Carolina. Right. Because of Kenny and Sam Howell. And, uh, you know, he's, there, there was pouring rain at the end. He makes the throw to, to win the game on, on the slant. So I don't know how many of contact me. I, most of them have in the off season and during the season. So I'm sure as, as, as it gets closer to the draft, everybody, there'll be some calls, but, uh, I think they've gathered their information and he's got a lot of, he's put a lot of work into it and he's, he's got a lot of tape that people can watch. Probably the more tape you have, the more you can kind of, uh, be negative about it, but uh, as I said, he, he uh, he's done all the things you need to do to, to get to the next level. Alright, last one, um, because we care about here, and they've got the 11th yeah. pick in the first round. How much conversation have you had with Washington, and if so, with whom? They've been through, I don't know, uh, I can't remember the scout. They've, they've been through earlier in the year um, at, at Pitt and beforehand. I said every team's been through. So, you know, whether they send the, the top scout or the first scout or, you know, a lot of days there was 20 people there. So, you know, I'd have them in my room and talk to them. And um, so we're during, you know, I spent that time for Kenny, but more of the times I was more worried about the game plan being put upon, uh, sure. uh, put, put in play in that way. So they, they've been there. And, uh, you know, I think he would, it would be a great place for him. I think any place. It'd be great. I know it'd be nice for his family, who are very supportive and close enough. So, um, you know, when you're in a division that's a little topsy turvy now, or up and down, but you know, he'd, uh, you know, he, he'd he'd do well there. I lied. One more question. Um, do uh, you know much about the Washington situation? Do you know Ron Rivera? Do you know Scott Turner, the offensive coordinator, or Ken Zampezi, <clears throat> the quarterbacks coach? Do you have any familiarity with the Washington coaching staff? Yeah, Kenny. Yeah, Kenny. Kenny was at, uh, you know, Kenny was at um, Cincinnati when I was at the Steelers, and then, you know, Ron was at, uh, you know, before I got to the Eagles, and I, I, I known Ron from some of the times there. I went to, well, before the, you know, I, I spent a day down at, in Washington one day when Matt Cavanaugh was there. It was a good friend from from Pitt, and you know, Scott Turner, I believe, was a GA here. It was a GA at Pitt with my son. My sons were the Arizona Cardinals, so. Uh, 
Uh, you know, I've had some familiarity, but uh, I, I really have not watched Washington. I know Heineke's there. I watched Heineke when, when he was playing in college, but I, I haven't watched as much NFL stuff. I just started a, a little bit. We're in recruiting now, as, as I'll watch most of the NFL tape. I really appreciate the time. You're at Nebraska. Uh, you had that uh, fun few years with Kenny Pickett and some really good teams yep. and some exciting games this last year. Now you're with Scott Frost. I'll tell you what, I mean, I watch a lot of college football, and that was a heartbreak team this year. They had so many chances, you know, against good teams, Ohio State, Michigan State, and Oklahoma, yep. and just kept coming up short. Um, I wish you the best of luck out in Lincoln, and uh, we'll certainly be following them. Um, next year. Uh, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it, Kevin. Okay, go Skins. Good information from Kenny Pickett's offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, Mark Whipple at Pitt, uh, the last few years. They're going to be talking about Kenny Pickett's hand size from now until the draft and probably afterwards. Uh, you heard Mark Whipple's answer to that uh, as part of the interview. Okay, up next, something I'm actually very much looking forward to. I've got one of the two executive producers of a documentary that I have recommended on the podcast previously, uh, a documentary about ACC basketball, but really specifically the ACC tournament. Uh, I have watched five episodes of it so far. It's a 10-episode documentary. It has been incredible. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And John Dahl is one of the two executive producers of the show. And he's a local. He grew up in Rockville, Maryland, and was pretty much born into the ACC. He will be my guest uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate us and review us on Apple and Spotify in particular. Uh, It's very helpful. I've been telling all of you about something that I've been watching that I highly recommend, especially for you Maryland and ACC uh, people that listen to the show. Um, This, uh, you know, ACC Network 
show the tournament, a history of ACC men's basketball has been phenomenal. Um, and joining me um, here on the podcast to talk about it is uh, one of the executive producers of the show, John Dahl. John has been a part of ESPN forever, the Sports Century stuff, all of the 30 for 30s. If you've gotten into the College 150 stuff, I've loved those uh, documentaries. God, they've been so good, um, John. Uh, John was a big part of this, and he joins us right now. And I, I reached out to you guys because I just... I love it so much, John, as a long time, you know, I don't know if you just have to be a college basketball fan or a sports fan to really love it. I Part of me thinks that you have to kind of be uh, a part of this ACC family um, to to really get all the references, but it's so well done that I think anybody will, will enjoy it. I, 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 there are several questions I have for you, but I'll start out with this. Why did you guys decide to do something on the ACC and then pick sort of the tournament to center it all around rather than just the, the basketball league? Well, thank you, first of all, for the high praise uh, for the series. Um, this is really, for me, a, a fulfillment of a, a lifelong dream because I have followed the ACC my whole life uh, since growing up in Rockville, Maryland, until I was nine years old and later going to the University of North Carolina. And I have just always loved ACC basketball. Um, and so what happened was, uh, we announced that we were going to be starting the ACC network at ESPN in 2018. And uh, I had been working on a project at that time called College Football 150. It was about the 150 years of college football for the anniversary season in 2019. That's great. And one of the uh, uh, things we did uh, during that initiative is nearly 40 hours of content was an eight-part, 12-hour history of SEC football. It's called uh, Saturdays in the South, a history of SEC football. And I was thinking, you know, we should do something big like that for the ACC. And I started uh, spending more time with Aaron Cohen, a good friend of mine, very good friend of mine and colleague, or a brilliant writer and producer. We would meet in uh, Manhattan in the summer of 18 and start talking about this. And, uh, you know, as I wanted to shape it, I was thinking, what, what makes the ACC unlike any other conference? And for me, it's the tournament. That's what sets the ACC apart. So I was talking to Aaron about that, and we started putting together a treatment and, uh, and worked on that for the rest of 18 and then pitched it uh, internally in early 19 at the end of January and uh, Rosalind Durant, who ran our college networks, and Stacey McCollum, who was going to lead our ACC network efforts, they loved it and um, just said, yes, we're going to do this and we're going to find the money. And so that's how it was born. That's so interesting because I so many times on my various shows that I've done over the years, I've always said that there are three kind of leagues slash divisions that are iconic and marquee and very – um, you know, just history driven and sort of have this sense of family about it. And it is SEC football, ACC basketball. And then this is a little bit, you know, close to home, but I think the NFC East in the NFL, even though it hasn't been, you know, in recent years, 
you know, those the four teams that have lasted, you know, the Cowboys, Giants, Skins, and Eagles, there is a sense among those four fan bases and a history um, and a sharing and a, con- and a connection that I think is unmistakable. And so I loved the um, Saturdays in the South thing. I, I love the whole college uh, football 150 thing, all of them. The Notre Dame uh, uh, episode was so good. Um, the episode about college football on television was so great. Um, mm-hmm. But um, back, yeah, that was my favorite. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was so it's so well done, and you know they air it uh, often. And I, I find myself and my wife will walk in and say, "Why are you watching this again?" And I'll say, "Well, it's just really good." And now she's watching me watch episodes four and five in particular um, over and over again because those are really what I would call the Maryland episodes. Um, and that's where I am, by the way, on the series so far. I'm through episode uh, five, uh, and it's so good. Okay. So, um, Thank you. So let, let's start with a couple of things. Who, like, there's so many cool interviewees here. You know, for me, like, just seeing Lefty at his age, I think he's 90 years old, and he's so with it, and he's such a great storyteller still. But still, a lot of the people that you've had on the show from all of the other schools who were your favorite interviews? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, starting with the Maryland uh, uh, guys, I, I got to go with Mo Howard, without a doubt. Uh, he was unbelievable. Um, just the emotion that he showed sure. in every respect. Uh, I always remember from the first rough cut, just seeing you know Mo get emotional, talking about his father, consoling him after that. A heartbreaking loss to NC State in the 1974 final, uh, you know, arguably the greatest game ever played in college basketball history. And uh, he was great, but so was John Lucas and so was Len Elmore. They were all great. I, for NC State, you know, Tom Burleson I thought was terrific. Uh, so was Phil Spence. I thought Phil Spence was awesome. Really good. Uh, you, have, you haven't gotten to it yet, but with North Carolina, uh, Shaman Williams, um, so good in uh, episode eight, and uh, Charlie Scott. I I think the most important interview of the entire series, we had to have Charlie Scott and the way he opened up about his experiences as the ACC was integrated um, starting in the mid to late 60s, um, to hear him and Billy Jones and Al Hartley and Charlie Davis talk about what they went through um, was so powerful and inspiring, the way they overcame um, what they overcame in terms of the, the racial prejudice and bigotry that existed. And so uh, Duke, I thought Gene Banks was fabulous, quite honestly. I really loved him. Um, so, yeah, you know, Wally Walker was wonderful. Uh, Wally Wonderful, he was really good uh, talking about his uh, Virginia 76 title. So I got to tell you, you know, the, the John Hawk, uh, Hot Films and the, and their team um, did a fabulous job with the interviews. They really did, uh, and uh, and that's what helps make a series like this. It's the interviews, people being willing to open up about their experiences, and then you know combining it with the with the wonderful footage that you you know, unearth. It makes for a great story. Who didn't you get that you wished and tried um, to get? Well, there's always going to be a few. I mean, look, we got over 160 interviews. And uh, most of this production was during uh, the pandemic. So the challenges were unprecedented. 
And, uh, you know, no matter how many people you get, there's always going to be a couple that, for whatever reason, they either just decline or just doesn't work out in the schedule. Uh, certainly David Thompson would have loved to have had him. Right. Uh, Derek Wittenberg, who was uh, helping um, set up a lot of our interviews, he's cousin of David, and, and he certainly tried, but David just wasn't interested in participating, unfortunately. Uh, John Roach, we really wanted him for the South Carolina story, which I always wanted to tell that South Carolina story. Uh, but Bobby Cremins was just so good that, you know, it made up for it, but would have loved to have had John Roach. And um, I think Kenny Denard. I think more with Kenny Denard, it maybe uh, was more of a scheduling issue. It just didn't end up working out in terms of the shoots that were being done. But I'm sure he would have been uh, terrific uh, as well. So there's always going to be a handful um, that it just doesn't work out. Um, but uh, the people who did participate, I thought, uh, were, were just great. I think one of the things um, about being a lifelong ACC basketball fan and having it sort of in my sports rooting DNA, and I told you before we started to record this, I- I'm still not over Maryland not being in the ACC anymore. I mean, there have been some really cool, you know, games in the Big Ten, um, but it's just not the same. You know, obviously the, the history, the tradition, and the, you know, the 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 it's, I get very nostalgic in in in. T- and thinking about it, and that's why this documentary your documentary has been so great. But um, I was surprised not to see or haven't seen, and it sounds like I won't see David Thompson um, in this. Do you feel, and I wonder how many people have sort of talked about this. Obviously, you got a lot of it from Mo Howard and from Elmore, um, you know, et cetera, in, these, you know, in episode four, where a lot, by the way, guys, the episode is really focused on I think the unforgotten rivalry in the ACC, which was Maryland and NC State in the 70s, I mean, they played on Super Bowl Sunday for several years in a row. It was a massive Titanic national matchup. But David Thompson, do you agree, and did you get a lot of this from other players, that people feel he is the greatest player in the history of the league and that it's really not that debatable? Uh, well, yeah, to, to a large degree, I would say that there is a feeling of that. No doubt about it. David Thompson was a game changer for the conference. Um, as great as Charlie Scott was, and he was phenomenal, uh, the conference hadn't quite seen a player like David Thompson. Uh, the way he could elevate was <laughs> incredible. Um, there's a story, of course, Phil Spence talks about, you know, making change at the top of the backboard, jumping up there and, you know, putting down four quarters for a dollar. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a legendary story. Yeah, it is. It is. And he was somebody that Michael Jordan uh, looked up to and wanted to be like when I think Michael was growing up. So, you know, I think there was a list uh, done around the 50th anniversary and Michael was rated ahead of David. Um they're both great players. There have been so many wonderful players in ACC history. Of course, Len Bias. I mean, we can't forget about Len Bias. Uh, what he did, leading Maryland and Lefty finally to a title in 84, that was just Len's sophomore year. You know, And then he played two more years. My senior at Carolina, he had an incredible game in Chapel Hill in the Dean Smith Center yep. uh, to lead Maryland to an upset uh, over Carolina. And I was right there to witness it firsthand, and it's just so tragic uh, what happened uh, just a few months later uh, with his with his death. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, terrific players, but certainly um, th- those are three that immediately come to mind for me. But there's there's so many others, you know, from the different decades that uh, really 
um, had such an influence on on the ACC's uh, growth. So I, um, I too, like the first two episodes are great. They're so well done. Don't get me wrong with what I'm about to say, but it's so well before my time. And it's really about the formation of the league and the significance of people like Everett Case and Frank McGuire, et cetera. You know, for me, that, that episode that you talked about, which was episode three with Charlie Scott, you know, is really, um, it's, it's, it's incredible in how significant Charlie Scott was to the league, even though he was not the first black player to play in the ACC. That player uh, was, play, you know, played at the northernmost school. But episode four, where you've got a lot on the Maryland NC State and the 74 ACC tournament final, there was so much in there that I thought was new to me, and I, and I consider myself to be like somebody who really remembers a lot about the, about that era. The, the rivalry between Elmore and Burleson and the quote from Elmore after a regular season game that he had dominated Burleson even though they had lost the game, I thought was great. But um, how much of that game – uh, did you guys spend time on? It was obviously a big part of that episode. And how significant do you think that game was to the league's growth and popularity? I think it was enormously significant. Now, during that time, I had left Maryland. My family uh, had moved to South Florida. My dad was transferred. He worked for Gold Bond Building Products, and uh, huh. we were transferred to South Florida. So I was out of the ACC footprint for the 74, 75, and 76 finals, and uh, that was tough. I just had to learn the score, like, through local news, and it was just, I was crushed that Maryland lost that game. Um, but that game was incredibly influential because, you know, the next year the NCAA tournament decided, you know, well, we just can't have only one uh, team from a conference uh, in our tournament. We've got to expand a little bit here. So I think Maryland, who arguably could have won the national championship in 1974 easily, um, but could, didn't even go to the NCAA tournament. For 21 years, the ACC only had one berth in the NCAA tournament, and that was determined in the ACC tournament. And that made it such a pressure cooker, enormous pressure that I think you felt as a fan watching, and certainly players and coaches felt it. So you, know, you look at that game, no shot clock, no three-point line, final score 103-100 in overtime. I mean, my gosh, what a game. Both teams were at their, at their best. And um, we, you know, as we laid out the 10 episodes, this is originally going to be six parts, nine hours. And then after I saw a first rough cut of the first episode, I was like, there's going to be too much left on the cutting room floor. We got to do more with this. And I was just coming off the last dance and we had 10 parts, 10 hours. I'm like, we should do that here. So I talked to John Hawk and, and, and I'm like, John, let's expand this to 10 parts, 10 hours. And to his credit, he was like, yes, let's do it. And he wasn't worried about money or anything. It was about let's just tell the best story. And we agreed on that. And, uh, you know, so as we laid out the episodes, it wasn't like, okay, we'll just go an even number of years in each episode. We would pick ins and outs of periods where we thought that was what a certain story, a certain narrative um, kind of held together. And we devoted, you know, an entire episode of one hour to just two years, 73, 74, because that's how important NC State and Maryland were and that rivalry to the future of the conference, the Super Bowl Sunday game. I remember that as a little kid, um, vividly. That was the day that Miami ended up finishing their yeah, undefeated beating season the Redskins. in the Super Bowl. Yeah. It was huge. And just those battles were epic. And 
it had such an influence. We talked about it in the episode, you know, Maryland helped invent Midnight Madness. Mo Howard and Lefty Drizel came, basically came up with Midnight Madness. That right. became a staple of college basketball. There's so much that that game had in terms of the future of the sport that we felt we just needed to devote an entire episode uh, to the drama. You mentioned the Mo Howard um, where he breaks down in tears and talking about the game. I also thought, and for me, like as a kid, John Lucas was just my favorite player. I mean, these are the first years I remember. You know, something that you didn't include in that episode, not that I'm suggesting that you should have, but what was really interesting about the 73-74 season is that Maryland opened up that season at UCLA um, on, uh, you know, like a Friday night in December. And, you know, after Lefty had claimed that he was going to build the UCLA of the East, they scheduled that game. I think Maryland was number three in the country. UCLA was one. And Maryland lost that game by a point. Um, UCLA would then that year lose to Notre Dame for that uh, long winning streak to end. But they also ultimately lost in the national semifinals to, to, to NC State when NC State won the tournament. But um, the, 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 that regular season, I think, really was significant for college basketball altogether um, because it became the first year of not UCLA. Because the sport was basically UCLA and everybody else. And I'm wondering if you think that that was really the beginning, that season specifically, of college basketball starting to become like this this meteoric rise to incredible popularity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably right. Um, because UCLA had won seven titles in a row. And, uh, and then 74, it, it, they're stopped. And, um, you know, I do remember that Maryland-UCLA game only because I remembered, like, wanting to get the score of it. Again, this is way before yeah. ca- cable really even got started, let alone streaming and all that. And you just, you know, a late game on the West Coast, I had to, you know, get the score, you know, sometime the next day or two. I was living in Florida by that point, by the start of the 73-74 season. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... When you look at it, even though UCLA won the title in 75 in Wooden's last game, right. uh, John Wooden's last game, right. I, I, I do think there's a great case to be made that it started the next era of college basketball in 74 um, with NC State breaking through and beating UCLA after Notre Dame had stopped that 88-game winning streak during the regular season. And, you know, I, I think that's just, you know, what, what we saw in the ACC helped fuel the future of the sport that really exploded, I would say, in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the popularity of the ACC, all of a sudden you had the formation of the Big East and then everything was off and running. Um, that's so funny. You know, you're, you grow up here and then you leave before uh, it really takes off. Mar- you know, Maryland opened up that season losing to UCLA by a point. A week later or two weeks later, NC State played UCLA in St. Louis, Missouri in a made-for-TV game and blew out NC State. Um, but then NC State eventually got revenge. As you mentioned, and I think you know, longtime ACC basketball fans know, the 74 ACC final created the Maryland rule, which was the expansion of the NCAA tournament, allowing more than one team from each league, because Maryland would have more likely than not given Lefty a final four that particular um, uh, year uh, had it happened. But I, I, I started and I got sidetracked there. But one of my favorite interviews was just John Lucas. You know, Lucas was my favorite player, and Lucas, 
saying that he's never watched that game. And think about Lucas's life, you know, NBA player, drug problems, drug rehab center that he's built. He's helped so many people, and that game still, you could tell, really stings, right? No doubt about it. What was striking to me right from the first rough cut of that episode was like, it felt like this game just happened about a week ago. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the emotions are still so raw, you know, with uh, with Elmore and with Mo Howard and with John Lucas. Lucas is still mad at Mo Howard for not taking the shot at the end of regulation. Yeah. <laughs> he just still can't believe it. And, you know, and talking about the pain of not being able to watch that game since. And, and um, yeah, I, I thought John Lucas was, uh, was terrific in his interview and, and an even better player. I mean, what a fun player to watch, a brilliant player he was. Uh, and back in the day when guys basically stayed four years. So you got four years at John Lucas at Maryland. Um, he was just outstanding. I'm curious. I mean, obviously, Dean Smith, you know, passed many, many years ago. Um, and I never considered Dean to be the best of interviews or the most charismatic fat figure, even though as a longtime ACC fan, I think he's the greatest coach in the history of the league. Um, what do you, I mean, you, you know enough about the league and, and you were affiliated with it in Maryland until you were nine and then going to Carolina um, and Chapel Hill uh, and witnessing, by the way, the bias game in 86 at the Dean Dome. Uh, but what kind of guest for this do you think Dean Smith would have been? I'm just curious if you have a thought on that. I think he would have been good with, with more time and distance from being in the middle of coaching. You know, when he's coaching, He's going to, you know, choose his words carefully. And Dean was so, um, he was so unselfish. It was about the players, you know, and he didn't want credit. He didn't want attention. I was around Dean Smith for my four years at North Carolina, and um, he always deflected to those that he wanted to give credit to. He was always ready to step up and take the blame for a loss, but he wanted the players to have the credit uh, for all the good things. And it just speaks to the man. He was he was such uh, an incredible man. Um, now, I think it was important to us, you know, in this series, it's very important to me, to make sure we humanize Dean Smith. You know, he's a human being, just like everybody. And so I uh, wanted to make sure through it all that um, the players, you know, who wanted to prove something to Dean, who felt like they, he slighted them in some way, got their chance to, you know, voice that, you know, from Jack Marin. Uh, expressing his disgust over Dean's four corners in the '66 uh, ACC tournament, he says that was Dean. You know, <laughs> to John Sally uh, coming up in episode uh, seven, uh, talking about how he wanted to play at Carolina, wanted to be in the Baby Blues, but Dean Smith didn't didn't recruit him. To John Roach, who used to, I guess, be a little trash talking to Dean Smith. Lee Dedman seems still mad about that. Uh, wanted to make sure that. Dean Smith was presented as a human being because I think that what is what makes it so powerful when Shaman Williams in episode eight talks about the personal relationship with Dean and how Dean believed in him when nobody else did. And, um, you know, Dean was an innovator, the four corners. I personally did not like the four corners. I didn't like stalling. I, I wanted a shot clock since I was a little kid. I'll never forget my seventh birthday, um, being allowed to stay up late, and watch Maryland, South Carolina. At that time, South Carolina was like number two in the country. Sure. And Maryland lefty decided to hold the ball. And I was so upset. I didn't even stay up to watch the rest of the game because I was like mad Maryland was holding it, which was to their advantage, by the way. And it worked because 
Maryland won the game like 31-30 or whatever. Jim O'Brien. Yeah, my yeah, Jim O'Brien, and I, you know, I got the score the next day. My dad wrote it on his gold bomb building product notepaper next to my bed. I'd wake up and see the final score. Um, so I'd never been a fan of holding the ball. I think the Virginia Carolina game in '82 was kind oh, of the yeah. last straw for that, and we saw a shot clock come in in the ACC right after that in the '82-'83 season. Um, but you know, it also could be an offensive attack with Phil Ford. I mean, Phil Ford was the maestro of the four corners, and he made it. Uh, uh, and a very aggressive type of uh, approach. Um, but, you know, in the end, Dean Smith wasn't fighting the rule changes, by the way. You know, when the shot clock came along and the three-point line, he was ready to adjust. I mean, he was just a brilliant coach. And, you know, it, it, and he led us to Roy Williams. And Roy Williams, a, a brilliant coach in his own right. So um, the influence Dean Smith had over the entire conference, you can see in, the, in, in our 10-part, 10-hour series here, that Dean Smith is is there is, is present uh, throughout, you know, almost right from beginning to end. Uh, it just it's so funny because as a Maryland guy and as you know, and I think this gets pointed out a couple of times in the episodes that I've watched. Actually, I'm, I'm realizing I, I I skipped ahead because I did watch episode seven because I wanted to see how much you had on on Lefty winning the '84 tournament, um, and that was awesome. Um, but it's like I have. And I remember, and my father was a basketball coach, and so um, I, I, D- Dean Smith. I even though I hated Carolina with a passion, and we were kind of the, you know, the the northern redheaded stepchild of the league, you know. And they point that out about coming to Greensboro and how it was a road game. And it's funny, I had Gary Williams on my podcast last week, and they were celebrating last weekend the 20 year anniversary of the 2002 national championship game. And Gary made this admission, uh, and he's never told me this before but he said you know I never treated the ACC tournament with the the way I should have I always felt like we were the outsider that these were road games and um, until we won it in 2004 I I don't think I ever realized how important it really was and I'll tell you as a Maryland fan after the national championship game the ACC title in 2004 beating Duke and I don't know how much you have on that in, in future episodes episodes is probably the second greatest thrill along with going to the first final four winning uh, the elite eight over Stanford in 2000 that a Maryland basketball fans probably ever had um, I don't know where I was going with this but I guess I, I wanted to get to this this point and I read this quote from uh, your executive producer on this show Larry Weitzman he wrote quote, yeah he's the director on it yeah the director so, uh, yeah John Hawk and I are executive producers Larry director on it and done a done a terrific job yeah I, director is what I meant to, to say he he I read this quote he said while diving into ACC history one of the things that was so fascinating was how much of a family story it is. The players and coaches all know each other intimately. The intensity of the competition feels like sibling rivalry. All we had to do was sit down with the wonderful characters who have created ACC lore, and the stories and the passion just poured out. The challenge wasn't finding enough fascinating material. The struggle was which amazing stories we would have to leave out, closed quote. You've already referenced kind of the, what was left on the cutting floor. So which were the amazing stories then that, that got left on the cutting floor that you didn't get to tell? Well, um, with a project like this, even it, it, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? You've got, 
you know, 500 minutes, yeah. uh, over 500 minutes to tell the story because it's about 51, 52 minutes per episode of content, not counting the commercials. So it's over 500 minutes, and yet you still have to leave things out, you know? And we said it from the beginning. We wouldn't cover every single ACC tournament because in the end it's about a narrative. We're telling stories. It's larger themes um, that we're exploring. So sometimes a tournament just doesn't really kind of fit into where we're going with the larger story. And so, you know, 58, Maryland's first title in the ACC, and we didn't cover it uh, with Bud Milliken. Um, NC State in 59. Uh, Carolina, Virginia in 77. You know, Carolina, Virginia had just met in 76, and we had other stories that we uh, needed to prioritize in that episode uh, five. You know, we had to certainly cover Phil Ford, Carolina in 75, Virginia and Wally Walker in 76, Duke with Gene Banks, Bernard and Jeminski in 78. The most controversial finish, arguably, in ACC tournament history, the 1980 final between Duke and Maryland right. when uh, Kenny Denard uh, yeah, <laughs> undercuts go- Buck Williams going for the tip-in. <laughs> um, so... There's going to be things you have to leave out um, from time to time. Um, we didn't do the 87 uh, final, for example. Um, you know, I would say the, maybe the toughest cut for us was the story of the uh, passing uh, during the season of Tony Rutland's mother uh, at Wake Forest. When Wake Forest was going for their first two titles in the mid-'90s, that was in rough cuts. Um, but ultimately, just for timing issues, it ended up falling out. Um, and that, that was a tough that was a tough one to, to let go of. Um, and that's going to happen no matter what it's, you know, ultimately, um, you know, when you're, when you're gathering all this wonderful material and Larry's so right about turning on the cameras and just getting this fascinating stories that you're just going to get, um, you know, an embarrassment of riches and, um, not everything's going to make it. Um, by the way, when you mentioned Phil Ford's four corners, you know, the 83, uh, you know, NC State run through the ACC tournament, which led to their NCAA tournament run, you know, with a, you know, by the way, beat Virginia again um, in the Elite Eight. Um, if you ever watch those games, and I'm I'm assuming that they're, you know, this is the next episode that I've got to watch, which is, um, I think you you know you'll get into the eighty you know the early eighties uh, before eighty four because that was the one I skipped ahead and watched. Um, but the three point line was just a joke, you know. In eighty three, when they were experimenting, the ACC was with three point line. I mean, the actual line cuts through the top of the key. Um, and it just it's it's really incredible to think that they played with a three point line for that one season, I think it was just one season that was so ridiculously short and it took so long to stop Carolina from you know to get a shot clock in there and you're right that eighty two final was the, that was the one because they held the ball with James Worthy and Michael Jordan and it was you know UVA and Sampson against Carolina and we watched Carolina basically burn six minutes a clock in the second half I think something like that um, but did you did you notice just how ridiculously short that three point line was when they tried it in '83? Oh yeah, absolutely. I wish that line was in existence when I was playing. You know, <laughs> coming in, maybe I could have had a career uh, as a basketball player because I did have a good outside shot growing up, but we didn't have the three pointer quite yet. And that was my freshman year at Carolina, and uh, yeah, it was very short. I mean, I, I feel like Derek Wittenberg about it, Derek, and I've become good friends. Um, I covered that state team as a freshman at the Chapel Hill newspaper in '83. Uh, you know, that, you know, he wasn't shooting from that far out. I mean, come on. 
uh, th- th- those three pointers um, were pretty darn close. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it was a radical shift that was happening. And sometimes, you know, you you go through different uh, iterations of, of rule changes until you settle on something that feels right. And so, yeah, the, the three point line was a little too close at the beginning in the ACC, but. They eventually figured it out. All right. Tell me, just give me a preview of what I've got upcoming. I'm assuming it's a lot about Kay and the Duke teams and the Duke-Carolina rivalry maybe even gets built up a little bit more. Um, t- tell me what's what's coming up in these, in these last few episodes. Well, you know um... – You've got uh, you've got the story, of course, of uh, Jim Valvano and right. NC State uh, A3. It, you know, it, it, episode seven really focuses on the redemption stories of Lefty Drizelle and Bobby Kremens, each finally winning the that long um, uh, coveted title. I was actually at the '84 uh, ACC tournament, it was my first ever uh, ACC tournament to attend in person. I was a production assistant for the Tar Heel Sports Network. Hmm. Also happened to be Michael Jordan's last year playing at Carolina. What a year to just see almost every game. And it just felt uh, apropos somehow that I would be there to witness Lefty finally winning the ACC championship because Carolina got upset in the semifinals by Duke. So that one uh, stands out for me. Uh, certainly Bobby Kremen's story after 1970, the heartbreak at South Carolina when the ball was stolen away by Ed Leftwich and they had lost to an NC State team that was really inferior to South Carolina that year. South Carolina had gone undefeated in the conference and could have been a threat to upend UCLA's uh, streak of national championships in 1970. Uh, the Duke-Carolina rivalry really heats up in that episode. Episode 8, um, you know, the early 90s, it's Tech, it's, it's, it's Duke, it's Carolina. And then the Wake Forest story, such a, a, a good story with Randolph Childress oh, yeah. and Duncan, Dave Odom. You know, Dave Odom, we established certain characters throughout the narrative. Dave Odom's one of them. You know, he went as a kid, tells you exactly where he was sitting listens to games on the radio, eventually becomes an assistant coach, and now the big payoff as a head coach at Wake Forest finally wins Wake Forest a title for the first time in 33 years in 1995, and then they repeat in 96. So um, Dave Odom, great story there, and Shimon Williams um, and, du- and Dean Smith's final ACC tournament title in 97, um, just so powerful. Episode 9, we really get more into – uh, Duke just dominates. I mean, you know, they they won five in a row, then, then they lost one, and they won a couple more, seven in eight years. So the J.J. Reddick story, the all-time leading scorer in ACC tournament history, uh, we tell that story. Tyler Hansbrough and Roy Williams. Um, we do focus a little bit on Maryland in 04, um, interrupting Duke's run with John Gilchrist and Gary Williams. So that is covered, and what that 04 title meant to Gary Williams, John Feinstein captures that really well. And then the final episode, of course, so many changes. The ACC talked about Maryland leaving the conference. Um, Tom McMillan talks about voting to try to keep Maryland in. He was one of the reasons he voted to want want Maryland to stay, but Maryland left for the Big Ten. But new schools come in. Mike Gray's story is really good. Um, Family connections, going back to his uncle, Jack, who was on the 1960 Duke team. Um, Mike Gray got to know Lefty real well. He grew up in Rockville, Maryland, just like I did. So it meant so much to Mike Bray. You think, oh, Notre Dame, you know, not a, not a traditional ACC school, but Mike Bray's story makes it so personal to the history of the ACC. Sure. Leonard Hamilton, the first African-American head coach to win an ACC championship at Florida State. Uh, we hit on that. And Jim Laranega, 
who was an assistant for Terry Holland at Virginia, like in 83 when Virginia got beat by NC State. Aranaga now at Miami wins the title. So, and of course, Tony Bennett at Virginia. Uh, and we really end the narrative with 2020. The ACC tournament couldn't be finished because of the uh, coronavirus, because of COVID-19 emerging at that exact time. And they start the ACC tournament and it stopped right before the quarterfinals. It's just shocking, just like the whole experience of what COVID meant to the world. Everybody was just trying to understand what is going on. And that really is our stopping point in the narrative to bring it to a finish of more than ever we realize you know, through it all, uh, what the ACC tournament has meant to our lives for decades. You've done so many iconic documentaries um, in your career. What's the reaction been to this one? It's been terrific. Um, it, it has been just not only praising the quality, which is uh, means a lot to all of us working at the John Hawk and the Hawk Films teams and myself, because it's what the ACC has meant to me personally throughout my life, but also just the appreciation that we did this. I mean, nobody ever has done anything like this, not even close. And, uh, you know, at ESPN, I'm always trying to find projects and uh, to do that nobody's ever done. You know, try to do something different. Try to cut through. And, um, and I just sent an appreciation that we made this happen and told it this way. And for us, for me personally, um, it has meant a lot. I mean, the people who have covered the ACC, all the great writers and broadcasters that have been around um, early in my career, and the fans, the, the, the players, the coaches, the administrators, you want to feel like you, you do it justice. You want to get this right. And it's such a privilege. It feels like such an honor to, to have the opportunity to tell this story. Um, and, and the Hot Films team, they've been so great to work with. And it's really um, been incredibly rewarding to see how people have responded already. Well, it's so well done. Um, I really am enjoying it. Uh, it makes me so nostalgic uh, for, um, you know, uh, to have the ACC the way it used to be because obviously these leagues are nothing, you know, the ACC is nothing like, you know, the stories that you've told of the ACC, what, the way we consider the ACC, the founding schools. Like, to me, once it started with BC and Miami, it's it's it ceased to be the real ACC anymore, and now it's, you know, ridiculous with Syria. I mean, when Maryland left, they had given Pitt as Maryland's crossover rival. I mean, that was a major slap in the face. But, um... And man, it's so well done, John. It's so good. And as I've said, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times already on the podcast and on the radio show. Uh, for anybody that's an ACC, longtime ACC basketball fan, this is absolute must watch. Um, best of luck with it. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, and we'll talk soon, maybe at some point down the road when this thing is over. I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions when I finish it. Okay. <laughs> bring, bring them on. And thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And it's, it's nice to hear uh, how much you've enjoyed it. My pleasure. All right. That's it for the day. Back tomorrow.